Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're back at it again at the Krispy Kreme. And by the Krispy Kreme, I mean our respective recording environments several hundreds of miles apart. How are you, Dylan? <laughs> but this skrill is not a... no. Sorry, that's all I can <laughs> This think is of. not the mic, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. It's been a chill Sunday. Um, I need to get a little bit more productive in other departments of my life, but I'm here, finally here, I, recording I for feel you. That. If you know the words, you can join in too. <laughs> wow. Very <laughs> musical episode of Backstage Gaming this uh, week. Oh yeah, we should change um, the topic altogether. <laughs> please no. No, um, no. So this week, we're going to keep it kind of short and breezy again this week. I know that we've been doing a lot of shorter episodes recently, but... But we, we, got, uh, some, we got some in our arsenal. Uh, we yeah, got, Dylan, we got a Dylan did, uh, had a, a long recording day yesterday. I've got more recording to do this evening, so we're, we're, we're doing it uh, in the bite-sized pieces that we can do it in. And this week, I have a topic that I think we've talked about before, but I have a new angle to approach it from. And maybe we haven't talked about it before and I've just thought about it before. Um, I mean, I think about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be talking a little bit about storytelling in exploration-focused games, things like Metroidvanias and uh, Dark Souls likes. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually might surprise you with a little bit of some alternate... Well, maybe I've talked about this stuff before. We'll see what happens. Well, I'm excited. Yeah. but I want to talk a little bit and, and get into it, why this was on my mind. And it's on my mind because I recently, one, I recently finished uh, Metroid Dread. I picked it up and played all the way through. And I also recently finished my, at this point, uh, like twice annual playthrough of Hollow Knight. Because that <laughs> game has rapidly become one of my like pieces of video game comfort food. Mm-hmm. This might be a little more conversational than some of our other podcasts, because I, I do want to pick your brain about Metroid Dread a little bit when we get oh, into Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. So. Um, um, yeah. The big difference I noticed mm-hmm. is Metroid Dread... Let me, let me get my thoughts in order, because okay. there's several of them that are kind of like all on top of each other, and I want to make sure I sequence them correctly. Right. Um, one... I found myself getting lost in Metroid Dread on my first playthrough way less than I thought I would. And there's actually, I, I, after a beating, I went and found this. There's a great uh, Game Maker's Toolkit yeah, did a Boss to. Keys episode. I was going to plug Dread. that if you weren't. <laughs> it's very worth watching and it's very good. And he also points this out. He had a, a, a much smoother time and much less spent much less time wondering where to go next in Metroid Dread. And he kind of broke it down. The game does a really good job of making sure that the next place to go after getting a power-up is very nearby. Uh, For people who haven't played a lot of Metroid or Metroidvania games, 
the core gameplay of them is typically like you are given a world to explore without much direction. Uh, and as you explore, you run into a variety of dead ends where like you can't go further in a given direction because you don't have the tool necessary to open a door or traverse a gap or make it up onto a ledge or, 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 or. Mm -hmm. And so the gameplay is about exploring until you find the path or paths that you can advance down, which usually end in a boss fight or set piece that leads to you gaining a new ability that you can then use to access those dead ends that previously were blocking your progress in those other directions. It, it's a really fun gameplay formula, I think, at least. It, it, it ticks a lot of boxes for the way that I like to play games. Mm -hmm. But what Metroid Dread does is... One, they use a lot of uh, sort of one-way paths where you can get through a pathway at the beginning of the game going in one direction, but you can't go back through and access the areas behind that point until you get more upgrades to kind of cordon you off and make sure that you don't have to hold as much of the world map in your brain when you're thinking about where to backtrack to uh, as you would otherwise, and they also tend to breadcrumb you, you know, you'll get an upgrade and leave through the door of that upgrade and then see like, oh, right away or pretty close to right away, I can now get this upgrade that this like, you know, missile tank upgrade or mm -hmm. uh, energy tank upgrade that was unaccessible up until I had this item, and then going to get that will reveal a new path that you can go down that ends up leading you in the direction of progress. If you want more detail on all of this, this is basically the, the contents of that Game Maker's Toolkit video, and it's, it's well worth watching. It's a really good uh, analysis. Yeah. From what I've played of uh, Metroid Dread, it does feel structurally more similar to the Game Boy Advance Metroid games uh, than the uh, Super Metroid. And yeah, I guess yeah. through through proxy Metroid on NES and Samus Returns is its own thing, so we'll we'll put it off in the corner. Yeah. I was gonna say what I noticed about that is a couple of things from the a pacing point of view. Metroid Dread feels really well paced in a way that Metroidvanias rarely do. Because you spend less time having to think about like, okay. There's like, you know, these four points that I marked on my map that I know I can now backtrack to now that I've gotten the double jump mm -hmm. because you don't have that. And instead it's like, oh, right here I can cross with my double jump and then, hey, look, I'm in this new area. Mm -hmm. It lends itself to a much sort of faster clip on a first playthrough. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I finished the game in just under six hours. Uh, right. for my first playthrough and i think and for me uh I, I i've been meaning to pick metro dread back up but there are other games that have really seized my attention yeah. and I, I think for me i i kind of like that rewarding or it feels rewarding to me to be like all right let me check all those other routes oh i can't oh go same back to that and, and i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to the are side effects to that? Of that okay. in a minute um so like you know one benefit the pace feels really mm -hmm. nice and it 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 does feel a little bit more like a traditional, like, I don't want to say linear, but like more directed sort of play experience because you find yourself kind of rather than turning the world map over, you're kind of being guided along on this tour of all the different areas of the game. But what I noticed also is that as a side effect of that, the way they had to present their story information 
changed mm-hmm. in in something like Hollow Knight, because that's the main point of comparison I have right now in my brain, because I just played through that again. Hollow Knight does do some of that kind of gatekeeping and, and one-way roading at points, but for the most part, it's much more like your Super Metroid, in that the, the world opens up exponentially as you find each new item, and so on your first playthrough, you're left in this position of like, okay... I'm going to have to spend some time looking at the map to figure out what areas I can turn over a little more. And you can buy uh, markers at the maps shop that you can use to mark points on your map of interest to help yourself keep that in, in your mind. But as a result, Hollow Knight is a game that basically doesn't tell you any of the story directly. Mm-hmm. There's like three cutscenes in the entire game. And... Most only one of those one of those happens right at the beginning. One is like semi required, but even then you can miss it if you don't head into one particular area of the game. And another is only required if you are going for like 100 percent completion. (laughs) Otherwise, everything about the world of the game is picked up through either environmental storytelling, you know, elements of the background or uh, signposts that you can find and read hidden off in corners of the map, or by talking to characters that, again, are usually kind of off the beaten path, and you have to stumble upon finding them as you explore looking for the path forward uh, until you know that they're there. Metroid Dread, on the other hand, the way that the story is presented in Metroid Dread is by when you walk through uh, one of the varieties of save rooms in the game are like these data center rooms where you can plug your suit in and have a conversation with your AI, uh, your ship AI, Adam. And Adam will sort of tell you what has recently transpired and tell you a little bit about what's what's coming up next and deliver some exposition about the ME units and the uh, the enemies of the game and the NPCs. And that is at least as far as my memory goes, basically the only way that Metroid Dread tells its story. Mm -hmm. And as a result, even though I beat Metroid Dread two days ago, I remember and can tell you much less about what the story of Metroid Dread is (laughs) than I expected to be able to. Like, I remember it and I can drag it up, but it's not... I I will ask you, do you think Mm -hmm. a certain level of investment in Metroid lore is, I don't want to say required, but like, would have helped you your enjoyment or at least your retention of Dread's story. It's I know, possible, I know but it also a lot into the Chozo um, yeah, in a way that it's like, definitely possible. But it also does a fairly good job of presenting the information that you need mm-hmm. as it's telling the story. Like I never felt like the fact that like my Metroid experience. I've played Super Metroid. I've played a little bit of Samus Returns, and I've played about halfway through Fusion before putting it aside and, and, you know, coming back and forgetting what I was doing next and being like, yeah. okay, well, I should probably yeah, start over. that's the fusion experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, I will admit that I am not a Metroid scholar, but I also, that never felt like it was preventing me from understanding what was going okay. on. I think it is that in, in most Metroidvanias that I've played, and especially things, and even, like, things like the Dark Souls games that have, have certainly added their DNA to things like Hollow Knight and a lot of the other more modern indie Metroidvania experiences, they use the fact that you're going to get lost. They use the fact that you are going to spend time kind of tracing over your steps again and again, looking for the place to make progress or or 
even if you know where you want to head, you're going to have to backtrack through a, f- a fair amount of the game and you might spot new areas to go mm-hmm. off and explore. They use that as a sort of narrative tool. They use that as a way of like the setup that you are going to uh, be ex- uh, receiving your story bits as environmental storytelling as npcs off the bitten path beaten path mm-hmm. as items you can find in item descriptions to incentivize you to further explore because that's how you're going to know more about what's going on and that's how you're going to receive the story mm-hmm. and i just like i don't have a thesis statement to go with this i just noticed that as i was playing dread and hollow knight kind of in tandem with one another it's a really interesting divide in how story was being presented between the two and i think that a lot of that comes down to dread being a more guided and less you have to backtrack and you have to keep track of the map really in purposefully kind of experience well this i feel like this actually ties very well into examples of games i've been playing recently Oh, please let's go (laughs) um yeah so i've been uh juggling between uh dark souls and neo 2 uh, the original Dark <laughs> hey, Souls there we go. and Neo 2. Like uh, Metroid Dread and Hollow Knight, they are games of similar genre, of similar appeal, uh, but uh, wildly different in how they're structured. And so Neo 2 is like where I, where I get my action game fix, um, and Dark Souls is kind of a slower, more methodical kind of RPG experience to me. Because yeah, Neo and Neo 2 are, you know, from like a broad structural sense, Souls-likes, right? Yes, yes, they very much are. Yeah, but um, my understanding is that Neo features a lot more like character action-y style combat there, stuff. There I have, I have not played the game. A, there is that to a degree. I mean, like you have skill trees, which aren't quite... Uh, you, you won't really get a skill tree in your Devil May Cries or your um, Ninja Gaidens. But uh, the, the RPG elements that are present in Neo do feel a bit more, I guess, diverse. Um, would be like, you know, you, you pick a weapon and that weapon is predisposed towards certain stats and you kind of, you kind of make your build around that weapon. So I, I'm going with the, uh, uh, split staff, which is a bow staff that, uh, will kind of separate into nunchucks. Uh, yo, that's cool as hell. It's very cool. Um, they're not like really nunchucks, but like they're, they're bow staffs that break off and like are connected by some kind of cord that you can swing for extra damage. Uh really fun weapon type. Those uh the, the the main stat that determines your damage for that is magic. So you can build the character however you want, but um to get the most bang for your buck, you might also want to consider picking up uh magic spells to cuz that's just like how the build with this weapon is made with that in mind. That that's getting away from the topic a little bit, but Neo Neo's a, a fun series. I highly recommend it if if you like uh particularly Bloodborne out of the Souls games and want something with a little bit more um not more, but uh you, you want something that is like that except crazy and insane. <laughs> <laughs> um and you're insane, I should say. The structurally, uh you know, I feel like a lot of people talk about the Souls games, but uh in Dark Souls 1 in particular, you are exploring this, it's not just a castle, it's like a castle and its surrounding land, uh, the, the town, the, the marshlands around it, like, you're, you're in, like, a specific region of this fictional world. And you are 
kind of exploring, making your way through, uh, you're presented with multiple paths and character flavor text kind of tells you like roughly what's in each direction and what your goal is supposed to be. And it's really up to you to piece everything together. Neo is structured much more uh, dungeon to dungeon. So you're, you're given a bunch of like smaller areas to explore. Like they're more, they are self-contained levels and going from area to area, you gain more experience points and you, you know, you, you uh, clear the level, you get a, a cutscene at the beginning and end of each level that kind of tells the story. And this is a story that takes place over the course of several years, apparently. <laughs> so it, it's, it's cool and it's very different. But um, I think to tie this back into what Chris was saying about Metroid Dread and Hollow Knight, because um, the story in Dark Souls is something that is more like is intangible the right word? I th- I I know what you're getting at. I think it's, I've described it before as being text. very in very indirect. Indirect, thank you. Because I I was gonna say because it is indirect, you have to kind of work to make it tangible, and that creates its own tangibility. Whereas um, Neo Two has a lot of characters, but like you're not really given enough time with any of them to become super endeared to them, at least so far. And it's like it's cool, and you're you're getting like kind of basic story feeds, but it's it's really not about that. You just want to go to the next dungeon and see what cool new weapons or skills you can find um, and equip to your character, and what new enemy types there are. And so you know the the game loop of uh, Neo 2 is, like, very action-oriented, whereas, like, because Dark Souls is so exploration-oriented, and they're so vague about, like, what you're actually doing and where you need to go, like, you you, you kind of engage with it a, a bit more, and it, it creates this feeling of, um, place? I don't know what the, what the, what the word I'm, I'm looking for is, but, like, it, it feels more, you're thinking about it more. Yeah, um, there, there's more active engagement going yeah. on that's that's uh, exactly the feeling I, I had been describing as well yeah right because like i love you know, i love when Neo the 2... cosmos aligns and we just both happen to be playing games that are like <laughs> feel the same way like it's, that it's very good it, it's it's very cool <laughs> you know i i do think like neo 2 has good level design but because it's like level to level it doesn't all congeal like it's it's not all one place and i think one of the greatest appeals of dark souls even more than it's super hard intense combat because i'm gonna be honest after after spending some time with neo 2 dark souls is still like punishing like if you if you mess up it, it feels really bad but uh i i don't think that like the appeal of dark souls is nearly as much in the combat as people make it out to be it really is i would agree in, like, with the, that the location and the setting and seeing how the whole world comes together and feeling that freedom to really kind of choose your path and kind of experience the world at your own pace, which, you know, I I think parallels with Hollow Knight pretty nicely. Yeah, absolutely. That's about all I had sort of prepped for this. I just kind of wanted to bring this up. And and I think the the takeaway from this really is that, like, there are styles of storytelling that work for different kinds of games. And oh, are we are we wrapping up for the conclusion? Because I, I don't have even. I not necessarily want to wrap okay, up for the conclusion because okay. I still want to. You mentioned <laughs> right, wanting right, to pick ahead, my brain about. Ahead. Didn't mean to cut Dread. You off. <laughs> no, you're good. I just kind of wanted to like try to 
coagulate the thought a little bit more. Got you, got you. I think that, like, I think what was interesting about it is that these are games, like, in both of our examples, they're games that share a genre for the most part. Like, they're very similar as far as the broad strokes of how they're designed, how they're presented, mm-hmm. uh, how you how they're engaged with by players. But there's, like, little differences in, like, I hate using terms like this, but, like, the intended kind of play. Mm-hmm. There's little differences in the way that the game is designed to be engaged with. There's little differences in the ways that the world is going to lead you or not lead you intentionally Mm -hmm. around it. That does make a big difference in how we as players, like how invested we get in certain aspects of it, how it's going to be best to present a story to us or, or, in the case of something like Hollow Knight and Dark Souls, less an active story and more like, you know, a history or a, a sense of lore about the world. And I, I just think that's fascinating that games that are so closely aligned for like 90%-ish of the kind of big scheme design philosophy mm-hmm. can still feel so different in that last 10% of like, of the decision making and I'm pulling these numbers out of my ass because I have not worked on any of these, but you know what I mean? No, I, I totally feel that. Um, and I, I do have one more example, but before yeah, we please. move on to that. Yeah. So, uh, Metroid, I think, uh, just hearing you talk about Metroid dread, there was something I kind of wanted to pick your brain about. Cause one of my favorite things about super Metroid and the reason why it is not only one of my favorite super Nintendo games, but like just one of my favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. is the story is ostensibly the baby Metroid got kidnapped uh, by Ridley, find Ridley, rescue the baby Metroid. Um, yeah. That's, that, you know, if you read the instruction manual, that's what it says the story is. But when you actually are playing Super Metroid, like, the the story for me is, like, you are getting a hand... And I've said this on the show before. Super Metroid is about you getting a handle of the 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 power suit, Samus's uh I, I want my brain goes to various suit, but it's not the various suit. I think it's just fault. called the power suit or the power. It is, armor. It is, it is uh, just called the power suit. Um, but uh, you are playing a Samus and you are getting a feel for the various suit. You are learning things that it can do innately that you were never conscious of because you couldn't do it in previous games. And, you know, like wall jumping and uh, uh, shine sparking and just stuff like that. And I think there there's something really cool about that because like the in Super Metroid the controls are really floaty like they do not feel yeah I don't want to say they feel bad like because once you get used to them they feel better than they feel very Super Nintendo I I don't even think that's the case though because you compare uh you compare Super Metroid to something like contra or uh or i guess super that's mario fair, yeah. world and you know like uh the controls in super metroid are weird by design um, yeah like you have like this kind of moon gravity and every every jump feels super floaty and just just it's a really weird vibe um when, when you pick up super metroid for the first time but i think one of the coolest things about Super Metroid is getting used to that and realizing just what you can do with that gravity mm-hmm. and the the different ways you can fight that gravity. And, you know, as you unlock more power-ups with your suit, like, you find ways to circumnavigate the weirdness of the, the game physics 
but by the end of it you just you've you've mastered the the game physics you know how to wall jump um and you know the the more you play like the more ways you learn how you can sequence break the game and there's just to me that's the narrative of uh super metroid it is samus like just like finally realizing the full potential of her suit right um and i don't think that is a feeling that like any of the metroid games that came after that uh have really really perfected the reason why i'm bringing this up is because i i think in a way it ties into the hollow knight storytelling where it's not something that is told to you so much as something you you kind of touch and feel tactilely through the the controls or just like realizing what you can do and where you can go yeah i i hope this wasn't too rambly but no and i i think it's an interesting uh-huh. point because i think i think you're right and i think that a lot of metroidvanias you know there is the story themselves itself of like you know the events that are why you're doing things and what's going on but then there's also this added element of sort of like the player story of like where exactly are you going to end up and and how mm-hmm. are you going about accomplishing your goals and the acquisition of power-ups the, the the sort of very active map making and keeping track of like where you can go and especially in something like super metroid that is so able to be sequence broken once you get a feel for how to move and how how the game works i think that that really plays into that same idea of like really active engagement that these games can be so good at at getting into right. and i hadn't thought about super metroid from that angle of like the active engagement, not just with the world and navigating it, but with also with like how you navigate it. Yeah, just with the base abilities. That's really cool. Yeah, um, I need that, to replay Super one, Metroid. I haven't, I haven't beaten that game in a very good. long time. Hey, if you wanna, if you wanna co-commentator, uh, point you where to go when you need help. I'm your, I'm your guy. That would be very fun. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I don't want to stay on this uh, topic for too long because I feel like I touched everything I wanted to. But yeah, uh, just to kind of tie a little bow on that, I, I do think that, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a very ludic experience, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, th- there is something oh, ludonarrative consonance. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I do think that something that Super Metroid accomplishes very well is taking because exploration is a thing that, like, you know, we've been talking about how exploration sells the story in these types of games. I think, just to tie the bow, like, Super Metroid is about learning just how you can explore the world. And I, I think that's really cool. Hell yeah. Yeah. Now, you, um, you, okay. you mentioned in something that I cut that you have a, a surprise final include. Yes. Um, so this was something that was kind of uh, brought to the forefront of my mind. Um, I am subscribed to a YouTube channel called Tama Hero. So this is the plug. Everyone should check her out. She does a lot of uh, reviews of Pokemon games and analyses of Pokemon and the story of Pokemon games. Uh, She's really cool. Check her out. Uh, She recently released a video on Pokemon Red and Blue, kind of defending that game from a narrative perspective. And something she talks about is because the story of Pokemon Red and Blue is so hands-off, the the story of Pokemon Blue is Professor Oak uh wants you to like gives you a Pokemon because he wants you to explore the world, uh learn to love nature, and also maybe help him study Pokemon a bit more. And how the whole game is kind of 
basically the, the game tells a story through its obstacles. And so your obstacles in the original Pokemon Red and Blue are, you know, make sure you're connect collecting enough Pokemon to help Professor Oak with his research. Uh, that's like one barricade. Another barricade is like Team Rocket's doing some crooked shit, so stop them. And then like a third barricade is collect gym badges. And so that kind of leaves it open-ended on like what you, the player, prefers. Um, and I, th I think it's interesting because when I look at Pokemon games, like really after that, um, it, it like starts in Pokemon Gold, but it gets more and more prominent as the series goes on. The story is has become so much about the Pokemon League and the Pokemon Championships that like, yeah, I, I, I think there's something interesting in how um, because like players know what the structure of a Pokemon game is. Uh, they've written their story to be more around that and less uh, free form. Uh, early, okay. Well, here's a hot take: early Pokemon is Metroidvania. <laughs> That's not at all true. <laughs> it's the most linear Metroidvania ever. Worth, yeah. But but I think I think there is something to be said about um, because as she was talking about uh, Pokemon Red and Blue, I started thinking about uh specifically Dragon Quest three, really really the first three Dragon Quest games where. The stories of those games are super hands-off. You get you have like a super basic objective, which is get to the end of the game. <laughs> and as you explore and progress, you you constantly find these new obstacles that are like, you know, barring your progression. And so it it's less a how how are the dramatic stakes increasing? And it's more like the the personal intrinsic desperation of how am I getting past this obstacle? <laughs> right, right. And Dragon Quest Three specifically has a moment where uh, this is at like the the two thirds mark of the game, but you think it's the end, and you finally you you you've kind of made it past like all obstacles. You have collected six MacGuffins, and now you have finally unlocked. Most RPGs have like an airship that allows you to fly around. In Dragon Quest Three, it is a giant mythical god bird, which is sick. Um, Yo. And it's it's really cool because like especially in hindsight because RPG conventions have told me conditioned me that like once you get the airship so much of the world is free to explore but in Dragon Quest three you you get the, you start flying around the world on this mythical godbird and you slowly realize the only place I haven't been to yet is the final dungeon <laughs> um and it's it's this really cool feeling of like. And I don't know, I don't think any RPG has been able to recreate this, like, emotional moment where you're just like, oh, shit, this is the end. Like, I have gotten past every single obstacle in this world, so, like, there is only one place. Like, this is the end. This is it. And I, I, I think that's really cool. Um, games that really kind of put story on the back burner to, like, and kind of do, like, stakes and uh, challenges and obstacles. Uh, in a way that is more like have the key item to get past like that is kind of dated design and I, I don't necessarily know if like people would be as warm to it like in mass today but I think it is dated know, but also like that is kind of the appeal of metroidvanias as a genre right and this, look this at how many of... indie metroidvanias are being released all the time right it's it's the satisfaction of chipping away because you know where you want to be, but like you and the the appeal is like slowly finding the ways to get to the 
see the way I think about it is like get to the gooey center of the game. <laughs> how many how many items does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Metroid? Right, game? like, <laughs> but like there there's there is something like you're just you're inching a little further and you're inching a little further, and I think I think that's the the real appeal of these exploration games. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that like I don't know, I I think that a lot of it just comes down to when you are. When you are presented with a world and not much guidance, mm-hmm. it makes you have to think like I don't even want to say think harder, but like you have to be more deliberate and you have to be more engaged with how you are making your way through in a way that a linear game, like a super linear, you know, action game, or even like the modern style of open world games with all of their their world map full of objective markers mm-hmm. doesn't really do it's just a diff it's a different way of approaching engagement that is required of of you and i think that that is really appealing yeah and, and fun and just because the conversation has led me to think about this regarding the uh, dark souls one's design very early in dark souls you are told that you need to ring two bells and there's there's one at like the bottom or you know near the bottom of the world map and there's one near the top of the world map yeah and um you're also kind of given a hint that the the bell at the top of the world map is going to be a little easier for you than the one at the bottom um and so like just given that like that simple tiny guidance like that has really radically changed the way I'm exploring cuz it's like all right where will this actually lead me is this the path I want to go or should I go this other way? Cause I know, I know I have a rough vague idea of like <laughs> what altitude I should be at. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, you know, and it, it, I, I guess it kind of adds like its own sense of tension and stakes to the, uh, to the journey in that way. It's like, is this getting me closer to my goal or is this, taking me to the the other goal that I I'm afraid that I'm not ready for yet. Yeah. And the the coolest thing and there's one one last thing on on a thing that Dark Souls does really well that is also indicative of Metroidvania design. You're told at the beginning that you know you need to ring the bell up high and the bell down low. And yes. when you get to the bell at the top of the world, and I don't, I don't want to I'm going to speak la, very la, broadly. La, la. No, I'm yeah, joking. I'm, I'm going to speak very broadly because I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. When you get to that bell, that is about as far as you can go in the upward direction. Mm-hmm. And same with when you ring the bell down low. Okay. But once you ring the bell down low, suddenly you like the boundaries of everything expands and there is more to explore up high that then unlocks more to explore down low and you what you what felt like the extremes of the world you rapidly you understand are not the extremes of the world. Excellent. That's that's exciting. And I and I think that that is, again, a thing that, like, that is the whole appeal of running into all those dead ends in, a, in Hollow Knight or Super Metroid and thinking, like, oh, I'm going to come back here. Like, once I get the thing that lets me, I'm going <laughs> to see what's through there. And, like, that ever-expanding world is such a cool thing to mm-hmm. uncover organically. Anyway, that's... That, I, we, we've rambled a bunch about this, and this episode ended up being not quite as short as maybe we thought it would be. Hey, hey, but it's fuck, still it was shorter a good than our average we, by, like, five minutes. <laughs> yeah, we got there. We got there. Uh, are you good to rap, Dylan? 
I'm good to rap. Then let's rap. Hey, everybody. Thank you Yo, so much for listening. My name is Dylan, and I'm here to say I'm, I'm rapping you down because well. I'm super lame. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it's the thank you all for Zelda listening. And it's really rad. That was Peace from Canada. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to the last episode of Backstage Gaming. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, genuinely thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about us and the show, you can find us at our website, bsgpod.com. There's info about the show. There's a contact form if you want to reach out to us directly. You can also uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on the Apple Podcast Service, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, what your podcatcher of choice. Leave a rating, leave a review, and also let us know about your favorite games that play with engagement and storytelling like this they can be souls likes or metroidvanias or hell maybe there's something in a genre that we haven't touched on today that does a similar sort of like active engagement exploration kind of thing i'd love to hear about them because uh if it's not clear these are some of my favorite kinds of games to play so let us know about those dylan will tell you how to hit us up on social media right now yeah, um, so if you have social media, which you might not, I don't know what this bit is, I'm sorry. I'm a little loopy, if you can't tell. Yeah, so if you want to find us on social media, you can hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is at BSG underscore cast. Um, also, if you want to talk to us, I mean, you can talk to us regardless, we don't bite, but, you know, we would love it if you use the hashtag BSGpod to get a little bit more traffic our way. Also, huge, huge thanks to our friend Brennan French for the key art he has provided our show. If you dig his stuff, you can check him out on his Squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is b-r-e-n-n-e-n-french.squarespace.com. You can also find him on instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts, and on Twitter, where his handle is at brennan underscore French. You should also go check out BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. You can find all of his music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash bioquery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. Thanks, as always, to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. If you like our show, you're sure to like some of the other video game podcasts on the network. You can find them all on Twitter by going to at HPVGPodNetwork. And thank you to our patrons at patreon.com slash bsgpod. Thanks to you, we don't lose money on things like web fees and uh, hosting hosting charges, things like that. So thank you so much for the support there. It means the world to us. And if you like the show and you want to support it in a very direct way, patreon.com slash bsgpod is the best place to do that. And I think that'll do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I love you and goodbye. <laughs> That was a weird energy to end on. <laughs> yeah, I usually have like a little after. <laughs>